You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 98. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And check us out at CodingBlocks.net. We can probably show us examples of discussion a lot more. Oh, you're trying to mess it up for all the two times listeners, huh? Two <laughs> There's been some controversy <laughs> lately, so I just want to, you know, buck with the, the status quo. All right, so I, I'm going to go the way that I that I believe that I sound. Send your feedback, questions. I can't even listen. That's too painful. And rant, please. To comments at codingblocks.net. Hey, did you? Okay, hold on. And follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net. Find all our social links there at the top of the page. I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Zach. and i'm michael outlaw this episode is brought to you by o'reilly software architecture conference have you got any plans this february no well now you do this february the third through the sixth in new york city o'reilly is hosting the software architecture conference i mean you wanted an excuse to visit new york city anyways right so i mean you're welcome (laughs) The O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference is the only conference that focuses exclusively on software architecture and the evolution of that role. So if you want to dive into technical weeds by covering complex topics from microservices to domain-driven design with different learning styles available, ranging from 50-minute sessions to two-day training courses. Learn how to communicate. Wait, scratch that. Sell complex technical topics and their merit to both upper management and technical teams with training courses like the architectural elevator. (laughs) Well, wait, I'm not an architect yet, you say. Well, a special networking experience called architectural katas is where you can go to practice being a software architect by breaking up into smaller groups and working together with other people on a project that actually needs development. Yeah, network with people using the same tech stack that you use to gain personal insight that you can apply to your own environment. The O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference covers the skills and tools every software architect needs. Use the code BLOCKS, that's B-L-O-C-K-S, during your registration to get 20% off of most passes to the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference. By the way, because we did all that, did you guys ever watch the, uh, oh, what's the new movie that came out? Uh, uh, it's got the rabbit, it's in the fox, and. Oh, yeah. Um, Into the Spider Verse. No, come on, man. <laughs> nice what's upon a Deadpool? Man, you guys, really? Bumblebee. Ah, uh, Officer Hops. Anyways, there's a scene in this movie that I cannot think of that is absolutely amazing. And it's, they, they go to the DMV to get some information and the people working behind the counter are all sloths. It's my oh, yeah. favorite part of the movie. It is so painful and it's so slow. So that's, that's amazing. Uh, and that movie is, uh, should I tell you or should I leave it as a exercise for the listener? Zootopia. I got it. <laughs> right. Wait a minute. My- that movie didn't just come out. Well, you know, relatively recently. Hold on. Within the past decade. We're good. <laughs> Your movie reviews don't count anymore. No, it's pretty terrible, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So a uh, little bit of podcast news uh, coming up here. Uh, so first, big thanks to some iTunes shout-outs, uh, <laughs> iTunes reviews. So shout-out for uh, Pindlegeist and Bozzoli. Bozzoli, sorry we were late. 
we appreciate your patience with you and thank you so much for <laughs> installing iTunes, leaving the review and then probably deleting iTunes and telling them in the review that you're going to do it. That's awesome. That was, that was baller. That was boss. So thank you very much. <laughs> uh, Mike, you want to do these? Uh, okay, sure. Uh, from Stitcher. Now I totally didn't take a moment to practice like my normal practice. <laughs> so these are going to come out really raw. Uh, JBZ Cooper, Terrence, and Saltire Steve? Saltire Steve? I I would have said it kind of like Satire, so Saltire Steve. Okay. Saltire. I like it. I think that's how I would have gone with it. A little salty satire. I like it. Yep. Yep. All right. A few things I want to mention. One, I gave up on Avin to code. I hate giving up on coding (laughs) challenges. Like I feel like I'm giving in. I mean, I tell you, I spent uh, eight hours plus on problem number 15 so i apologize to everyone in the advent of code channel i'm i'm throwing it in I, man that's december's news what who cares anymore? yeah it's january yeah, so, sorry anyway it's, it's really cool code, coding challenges though i got to do a lot of cool uh, like a star algorithms or like singular cir- singular circular linked lists and a lot of cool data structures and things like we would talk about in the show and be like next uh problem i'd be like, oh this is a heap so that, that was really convenient so i thought it was really cool but i just uh when i added up the time on it and then realized like oh i'm gonna be spending 50 hours this month on these problems, I gave up. But I'm curious to know if anyone else did it out, what their experiences were. And, you know, like obviously the problem wasn't designed to take eight plus hours. I'm just a adult and couldn't figure out how to get that last one over the, the line there. But, um, wait, wait, are you saying adults have no capability of doing these things? Oh, sorry. I meant dolt, like D O L T, like oh, the, uh, you know, got the, you. Yeah. 1993 called and they want their insult back. I thought you were basically saying fresh college grads would get this in a heartbeat. And of course you, you're oh. in, okay. All right. Not that guy. No, I'm just old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I, I don't know, but I, I would be interested in finding more things like that that aren't so time intensive. Cause I'd like to be able to do challenging problems that make me feel accomplished when I finish. But I, you know, I can't be doing two hours of homework every day and going to work. Right. Yeah. So, so that's a bit of crazy. So the code caught us on code wars. That's, you know, you're past that now. No, no, I, I still really like those, although I haven't done them in a long time. I've been slacking and you get back to it, but I like those because so many of them, you can set the, uh, like the difficulty level. So you can do 10 minute problems or 20 yeah. minute problems or, you know, hour. I've never tried to go super hard on the problems, but I like the idea that you can kind of dial it back. And if I, you know, disappear for a year and come back to it, then I can do that. And I, I don't feel like I'm giving up on Santa, which is what, how I feel about Advent of Code. <laughs> you can't flip <laughs> any more of those calendar doors open anymore now. Yeah, I, I ruined Christmas because of problem 15. <laughs> so, well, yeah. Like I said, it's January now, so who cares? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And uh, speaking of uh, January, Orlando DevFest is coming up, and I wanted to mention that for a couple different reasons. Uh, one is it's just a really cool conference, and it's in my backyard. And uh, two is because it totally snuck up on me. Like, I totally missed that this was going to happen until, you know, basically a month before the conference. And so it was kind of upsetting to think me to think like, Oh, there's this really cool conference going on right where I live. It's got a bunch of topics that I'm interested in. I'm looking at like flutter and DevOps and uh, I'll just all sorts of, sorts of cool stuff. And I totally almost missed it completely. If it wasn't for a beat up, I would never have found out about it. And it's like, if I, someone who goes to a lot of beatups, who pays attention, who specifically looks for conferences in the southeast to go to if i almost missed this like what else am i missing so i was curious like how people find out about conferences because there doesn't seem to be like one good spot to do it 
I really don't know either. I usually find out at meetups or what Word you guys tell me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, it really kind of is sad, right? But yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just kind of crazy to me. So I don't know. I was just wondering, like, if, if someone's out there that has a solution to this problem, then, uh, I would love to hear it because otherwise I'm, you know, I've got a couple, little bit of time off work coming up. So who knows? I might try to build something crazy. So hey, speaking of which, know. before you move on to the next one, didn't we both put in for a talk down at Orlando? Uh, yeah, Co- Orlando Co- Game, which happens in March. So we'll both be there. We're actually getting at a booth this time. So we're going to be hanging out. Uh, we'll probably have some stickers too. So if you're in the area, you should definitely come by and uh, hang out with us because otherwise we're just going to be like kind of staring awkwardly <laughs> <laughs> into nothing. Uh, yeah. But so did you ever hear back on whether or not you got accepted for the talk? I'm assuming not, right? I have not put mine in yet. What are you assuming not? Oh, wow. No. Well, no, that was, uh, they have, no, no, no. They, uh, <laughs> So I haven't actually been in my talk for that yet. I will be, but they're, uh, they aren't announcing the, uh, whether you got in or not until, January. Oh, okay. So shots fired, not fired. Okay, good. I was just so saying we're, we're that- <laughs> good for now. But yeah, even that's the thing. Like with conferences, like when are the call for proposals available? When, you know, when are the deadlines ending? Like you, it's like this secret weird network where like, you know, the speakers all kind of whisper each other. I don't know if it's supposed to be like secret info or whatever, but I, I would like to see that information be readily available and consistent. Yeah, it kind of stinks too, though, because if they're telling us in January, right, then that means that you've got two months to prepare for a talk, which, as we know, blows by faster than what anybody hopes for. So, anyways, all right, yeah, cool. And so uh, that's uh, Orlando DevFest, so January nineteenth. But I also want to mention a uh, contest that we're going to have coming up here pretty soon. So um, if you're not familiar with React Amsterdam, go Google it because it's the biggest React conference in the world. So they got tons of developers, really cool talks coming up in, in April and we're, we're going to have a free ticket to give away. So if you're on a mailing list, then that's an just example of the type of contest that we like to do. And we're going to try to do even more next year. If you're not on the mailing list, you can go to codingblocks.net and sign up there on the top, right? Or if you're on a phone, maybe scroll down to the bottom, but somewhere there's a mail sign up and we try to keep that list clean. We try to pretty much only really do contests on it. There may be an occasional other you know thing, but I also try to have a little fun with those contest uh, emails, so you should join and let me know what you think. Yep. All right. So now it is time to move on to heaps. What you got, Joe? Yeah, heaps are one of my favorites. They're kind of like specialized binary trees, so they have two nodes, left and right. But they're kind of special because they keep data sorted-ish. So like a binary search tree, you always know every value to the left is smaller and every value to the right is bigger. But with the heap, depending on if it's a min or max tree, I'm just going to focus on max trees. It's basically uh, uh, max heaps. It's uh, basically the same thing. Just reverse the uh, greater than less than sign. So I'm just going to I'm just going to stick with max. Every child is going to have a value that is greater than you. Now your left may be bigger than your right, or you might be right <laughs> be bigger than your left, and that, that doesn't matter. All that matters is that it's bigger than you, and that keeps things close to sorted, but not perfectly sorted which has actually some some interesting properties. It makes uh, slower lookups because – a lot slower lookups because you have to look at every value because you really don't know where any specific value is going to end up a tree other than it's going to be you know down or up. Well, you said you have to look at every value. You look at every value till you find it, right? Till you find it, yeah. So, so you could scenario. get lucky and find it really fast or you could get really unlucky and find it – you know, the very last thing that, that was in there. Yep. Okay. Worst case scenario, you're going all the way through every single node. Okay. So it's not, it's just flat out not good for searching. However, 
because of this kind of interesting property where we don't really worry too much about things being perfect. What this means is that, like in the max case, we're going to have our biggest value in the tree is always going to be up. So the biggest value is going to be the root. So in a case where you only care about getting the maximum value out of a data set, this is a great data structure. And you may think, when is this ever going to come up? But it actually does in a few interesting cases. Uh, primarily, the, the use case that I'm used to seeing is um, priority queues. So if, like, say we're looking at like tasks or we've got some sort of um, stuff that needs to happen and it needs to happen in a particular order based on whoever's got the priority or if we're doing like a, a breadth first search where we've got a tree and then we, we've got this other tree, this heap over on the side, which we use to keep track of what needs to go next. Then what we do is we make sure that that topmost value is always the next one that we're going to grab and then we can just pluck it off. And because we don't really care about whether it's to the left or to the right, it makes that balancing cheaper than it was for the B trees or the self-balancing binary search trees or binary trees. So it's kind of a compromise there where we say it's okay to have things sorted-ish and we're going to deal with worse searches, but we're going to have really nice rebalancing. And the algorithm itself is actually really cool. And, uh, you know, the, we're going to be basically focusing on the main use cases there. So min-max trees, uh, min-max heaps. There are actually 18 different types listed on Wikipedia, which is just nuts. And they're all slightly different. Uh, let's see. But because you're not so strict on the ordering, it's quicker to insert the data and then keep it balanced. And so you get linked list type uh, times. Uh, it's actually, sorry, I got a little lost on my notes. I got so excited talking about these heaps. <laughs> yeah, I got lost in my own notes that I wrote. You did bounce around a little bit. Yeah, it'd be all right. So the downside, like I mentioned, is that it's slower for lookups. Yeah, potentially have to look at each one, which stinks. But another cool property, uh, probably the the killer feature, and the one that makes it particularly suited for those priority queues is that it's really efficient to remove the top node, remove the root. And so do you want to explain that a little bit? Yeah. So because the entire tree, you might tell you, can I punt on that and get to it when we talk about the, uh, how it works section, yes. uh, which is kind of right now. Yes. Okay. okay. I'm going to come back to that. <laughs> how about we come back to it right now? Yes. I'm going to come back to right now, but I'm going to, I'm going to take the long way to get there. All right. It's one of my specialties, my coding block superpower. <laughs> <laughs> so the deal here is that uh, heaps are typically stored in an array. And this is unlike most trees where, you know, we kind of said some of those main advantages of trees over arrays is that we can have those dynamic sizes and we can kind of insert them in place and we typically don't store them in data structures like arrays. But this is a special case where heaps are almost always stored in arrays and that's because of the way that you fill them in. And uh, this is a binary tree, although you won't frequently see it mentioned with other binary trees just because it's got these own kind of special properties and it's so tuned for plucking root notes out that it's uh it's kind of considered its own beast and it's so common for that one specific use case that's basically considered its own category but say you take that memory you allocate it for an array you say uh size 1000 
1024, who cares? And when you go to actually fill in the values of the tree, what you do is just pop your, uh, I gotta stop using that word. You push the value that you're inserting into your heap into the first available spot in that array, the first non-null spot. And let's say uh, if we start with the number 25, we go ahead and throw that in the first index of the array. So array zero becomes 25. We throw in a second number one. Now one is going to be less than 25. So we know that in our max tree where we want the max value to be the root, it's going to go after. So we're just going to go ahead and put it in the next index. So now our array reads 25, one. Now, if we add one that's bigger, 99, then what we do is we go ahead and pop it in, push it into the third index there. We add it. So now our tree is out of order. This is not good. So when we add it in there, it's important that we check the parent and say, hey, are we still good? In this case, we're not. We've got 25 at the root, but we've got a child of 99, which is bigger. We want a max tree here, a max heap. So what we're going to do is swap those values. And if this were a bigger tree, if we say, uh, you know, uh, 100 nodes or something, then you would just keep going with that. So you always just insert into the first available index in your array, and you compare that index with its parent and say, hey, which one of us is bigger? And then depending on that result, you're going to swap them, and then you just keep checking it until you bubble up. But there's some interesting properties, like I mentioned. Because it's a binary tree, this is really important. Because it's binary, you can easily compute the value of your parent or the value of your children from any index. So if you give me index 5, I can say, okay, my parent is going to be, so I don't know the reverse of it, like 2n minus 1, something, some sort of uh, c- computed number that's going to be a fixed math There's division involved, but it's not even crazy. There's no exponential growth because it's always going to be a, a balanced tree like we talked about with the binaries. So I can always do just a little bit of math, a quick a quick calculation to figure out where my parent is, my child is, and I can use that to either bubble up the values when I insert new nodes or, here's the, finally the answer to your question, when I take the maximum value off, I chop the root off of that array. What I do is I go ahead and grab the last filled-in item in the array and I push it into that array at index zero. <clears throat> so I've moved the last into the first position. And then from there, I just bubble down. I say, hey, are you bigger than any of your children? If so, swap. Then if that node is bigger than any of its children, swap. If that node is bigger than any of children, swap. And in both cases, whether you're bubbling up or bubbling down, you're only ever looking at the logarithmic, uh, the logarithm of your of your uh, data set. So basically um, the depth of your tree. And that's because we fill it in. We always fill in the next empty spot in the array. You always end up with a, like a perfectly filled in tree. Like we talked about that Christmas tree with a little bit shaved off. (laughs) So does that make any sense? I think sort of the only thing that I'm not getting off the top of my head here is, we're talking about multiple – it's multiple arrays, right? It's one array. Okay, so it's one array, and then 
so this whole parent child notion then how does that live i'm guessing then the first index of the array is the root yep okay so then the child is what the left child is the next one and the right child is index two Now, the children for index one are going to be three and four, and the children for two are going to be five and six. Okay. Now I'm with you. So I can take any arbitrary note. I say, like, hey, what's two going to be? And the results for two were, uh, I think it's like two plus n minus one and two plus n plus two something. I, I forget the actual equation, but there's a, a simple mathematical equation that I programmed during my lunch break today, but it's on another computer and I can't see the formula I came up with now. But it's a really easy calculation that given any node, you can find its parent in like a, you know, a plus and a minus and maybe a divide, or you can find the uh, children in the same way. Okay. It's got to reverse the equation. Yeah, I'm with you now. So basically the array as you're moving to the right through the array, so if the array starts on the left and as you move to the right, then basically you've got the root, then child one, then child two, and then child one's first child, then child one's second child, grandchild, et cetera. Yeah, you're just going to keep walking through it. Okay, that that makes sense. Yeah, and in the notes I actually wrote down like – a really precise way of saying that I planned on saying, but I just got so excited talking about the heaps because they're one of my favorites that I kind of blew through that. And so sorry if that was confusing, uh, really hoped it wasn't, but the, the deal there is the root is always going to be your max value in a max heap or your min value in a min heap. And so if you want to chop that sucker off, you just take the value out of it, save it, do whatever you want to, and then pop the last item from the array that's been filled in the last non null value pop into that first spot and then you just do a couple comparisons with your children to see and your grandchildren, your grandchildren, grandchildren until you get things in the right spot. And this thing is not going to be in order when you're done. Probably not. <laughs> and we don't care about that. All we care about is that your max value is always in that first position. Hey, so it's kind of a funny case. I, I actually found much like you found a super cool visualization for the, for the B tree, I found uh-huh. one that's really awesome for this as well. Oh, very nice. This is a binary heap plus priority queue. So it's, it's a little bit more complicated, but it, it's doing something very similar. So yeah. Okay. Awesome. And so priority queues, you know, the kind of the obvious example there is like I've got a bunch of tasks and some are more important than others. So I always want to make sure that the most important task is in that first position in the array. So what I do is when I do any sort of insert, even if I know it's a high priority, is just go ahead and throw it in the last open or, yeah, the last, I guess I should say the first null spot in that array, the first non, non-filled non in area. Non-filled in. And you can, in like languages like C that don't really have, you know, the, the, the kind of the null thing that we've gone on like C sharp, then you can basically just keep a pointer that keeps track of the last. And whenever you remove an item, you decrement the pointer, you add an item, you, you increase it. But you basically just put it in the first available spot. This keeps the tree balanced. And then when you bubble up, you're only going to be doing a maximum of log n procedures. And once you find a value that, you know, is correct, you don't have to check anymore. You just need to go up until you don't have to swap anymore and then you're done. So, Similar to the previous site visualization that we used from uh, US, USFCA, there was another one that they had for MinHeap. 
that, uh, I mean, I know that Joe was wanting to focus on the max heap, but you know, again, reverse. same thing, just reverse your, your direction for the comparison. So, you know, you were talking about the example you found was in regards to like a, um, priority, priority queue, but this one, you can see the array and how it's building the tree and you see how it reshuffles the tree and the array as items get thrown in. Sweet. So I'll, I'll be sure I'll include links for both. Yeah. And I'm just going to look up real quick. What so that equation was, so I don't think I completely had understood until I saw the visualization, which is again, I mean, it's, it's hard to describe some of these things, but what you were saying that I, that I finally realized was when you were saying you insert the value into that last position, what it then does is look at the tree's parent, its parent to see if it's bigger than its parent. And if it doesn't, it swaps it. So every time you're doing an insert, it could potentially look at its parent and swap with its parent all the way up to the root. If, if that happened to be the case. Well, in, yep. in another way to, that wasn't, that didn't dawn on me until we saw the, until I saw the visualization too, is that, if you think about this in, in its tree structure, it's always favoring the left side of the tree. If you, vi- if you visualize the tree, it's always favoring yeah, it always the left side of the tree away. until that, until all of the nodes are full and then it'll, and then it moves its way to the right before it goes on to another level. And by tree. full, this is a binary. So it just right. means if there's two nodes, then move on to the next one. So And so as part of that favoring the left, that's when it'll make the decision of, hey, do I need to swap with the parent? So so by it going to the very end of you know the first null value in the array, that is going to be whatever would the leftmost node available is on the tree. And when it gets there, then it'll start comparing to its parent to figure out, uh, you know, do I stay where I am or do we need to swap? So uh, this is the University of San Francisco website. And I got to give them props, man. Like they did some nice, some nice things with these visualizations. Mm-hmm. These are, these are awesome. So. Yeah, I just looked up that equation. So in a zero-based array, if you give me any node index, so we'll say like the number seven, then its children are going to be located at two times seven, 14 plus one. So the nodes and plus two. So that the, my children, if I'm node seven, are going to be at 15, 16. Because and so if I'm at 15 or 16, I just reverse that equation and I'm going to get back to seven. If you, either, either one, 15 or 16, because I'm going to round down. So it's literally an O of one operation to go find the parent or the children. Yeah. Now you may have to find multiple parents in the case that you keep having to swap, but the worst case scenario, you're looking at the logarithm. So with 1 million nodes, worst case scenario is 20 operations to remove the top node from this tree. Right. Which is you're not going to get that with any other tree. Yeah. Which is also swapping them as they go. Right. Basically. Yep. From what and it's, it's keeping it perfectly filled in too, the best it can, you know, depending on the values. Right. No, that's, uh, so that's, that's really, really cool. cool. And I like that the whole way it kind of achieves that and is able to minimize those is just kind of by keeping it kind of close to sorted. It doesn't even have to be fully sorted. It just as long as it's kind of close, then we can be a little loosey goosey with how we rebalance and we save a ton of steps and we get you most of the way there and it works out pretty dang well. Very nice. So it's one of my favorites. So I was very happy about that. 
And so the pros for this one is you get a fast insert on average and O log N for the worst case. And if you remember the binary search tree, which is something that is often compared to, it's going to have O log N for the average case and O N for the worst case. So much faster inserts than binary trees, binary search trees anyway. And you've got that fast removal of the root node, which you don't get in any other case, but is a very specialized need that you're going to, that you're going to have. Now, the downside is that slow search. At worst, you're looking through every single element. This is not a data structure you want to use if you're doing any sort of searching. You're better off with uh, almost any other kind of tree that we've talked about. So when should you use it? When you need to quickly insert data and you only care about getting that either that min or max value. And of course, there's other you know 18 variations. But um, for the most part, it all kind of just deals with how it calculates that most important object. And uh, don't use a heap when you need to search for arbitrary values. And, uh, of course, mentioned that priority queue with the BFS. You guys remember the deal with the priority queues and the BFS? No. So I think that's the one we said where, like, you're going to borrow money. And you don't want to go to the grandchildren. You want to start with the parents. So you, like, kind of go to your uh, your children first and you say, hey, give me 20 bucks. And you're, you know, if your child says no, so you go to your next child and say, hey, you give me 20 bucks. Or else I'm going to go ask your your children. And they say no. Then you go to the, the grandchildren. But it's basically you start with the, the start nodes that are closest to you. Yeah, you're sitting. And that's so – there's no way to do that without having a, another data structure in order to keep track of what you need to go to next. And the most common solution for that is to, to use a heap. So here's a silly question. Is the .NET heap actually using a heap data structure? Do we know? Why is it named that? Question. You know, I didn't even think about that at all. So it would, you would use it when you want to use when you want to insert data quickly, and you only care about the min or max values. So that's surprising to me. Oh, but how about this? If you just wanted to quickly get uh, the max value being like the next memory address, I don't know how that would work with different sizes though. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure. I was. I was looking for it and I couldn't quickly come up with anything, but it just seems odd that it would be named the same, you know? Yeah, I bet it is. I just don't know what the the, the specific advantage of having it being a heap versus uh, something else. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah, I really wish I would have looked that up. Sidebar. Any anyway. rate. Okay. Well, if you know, leave us a comment. Chumac, I'm looking at you. <laughs> really good comments. <laughs> right. I'm not even finding the class. Yeah, there oh. isn't one. Oh, okay. I thought you were saying that there was one. No, no. I'm saying like when you talk about the stack versus the heap or whatever. Oh, you're talking about the memory. The actual, what type of data structure they use behind the scenes for the heaps, you know? And why they why do they use that particular one? Why? Do, yeah. Why do they use that name? For okay. The so this would, so this question is really like across any language then. Yeah. Maybe. Like, yeah. yeah like, like the Java garbage collection. C, C, for example, like if you allocate memory, you're getting on the heap and you're saying like, Oh, why do they call it the heap? Is this, is this some a kind heap of relationship? data structure? Right. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I'm curious. I didn't find anything in my quick Googling. So, all right. Yeah, that's really interesting. I really want to know because like the whole reason you would use that to me is like you've got stuff coming in fast. Okay, we've got that. We want it loosely uh, organized so that we can do that quick insert and we never want to search. I never want to search memory. Which and makes that sense seems to me. right. Yeah, it seems like it fits. 
I don't but just it's weird that it's got this special property where it's really good about popping off either like the min or max or whatever the most important value is. Yeah, I mean that's the only thing that I'm not certain of is usually the whole point of the heap in in a managed language is the ability to quickly garbage collect that stuff and I don't think it matters about the max or the min or any of that kind of stuff, right? It's just is it still used as the reference to it gone if it's gone clean it up kill it. Um would would yeah, the way it constructs the heap would be interesting like so you allocate a 18 kilobyte string then it's going to go ahead and put that in a lower spot and so i would think that it would always be arranged um such that like basically either the the most memory uh, full item memory. is at the top or the least either way and maybe it does the least and so it's easier to, for it to kind of go through those bottom nodes and look for things to clean up in a smarter way i'm, I'm not really sure but that is would have been a really good thing to look up tonight sorry <laughs> hey i got a question though um or you weren't about to ask him no no i wasn't so you said about the if you had a million nodes in it right i want to make sure i understand it wasn't that it was log of a million as is the maximum correct the maximum number of comparisons you would do is the logarithm of the number of nodes it's so not you, the, which it, is also the height of the tree it's the same but the number of nodes is not equal to the height. No, the height is the logarithm of the number of nodes. So mm. if you have a million nodes, you're going to have a height of 20, and that's the most number of comparisons you're going to do okay. whenever you insert or remove okay. a node. I, I wanted to make sure because I, I thought you'd said like logarithm of a hundred of a million. I might have. And that's what threw me off. And I was like, wait a minute, really? But okay. I think, I think I'm with you now. This episode is sponsored by Discover.bot. Discover.bot is an online community for bot creators. Amazon Registry Services Incorporated created Discover.bot to serve as a platform agnostic digital space for bot developers and enthusiasts of all skill levels to learn from one another, share their stories, and move the conversation forward together. And on its own, a good idea isn't as powerful as it could be. But when a good idea is shared and it gains strength and momentum, it becomes capable of changing things in a way that is both small and large. A good idea shared becomes an innovation. You got to say it with con- conviction. It gains strength. <laughs> and strength. Discover.bot aims to sit at the intersection of ideas and innovation. They want to help people turn their experiences, discoveries, stories, advice, and knowledge into part of a shared canon that moves everyone forward. For veterans and beginners alike, Discover.bot is a place for learning, teaching, and talking. Head to Discover.bot slash coding blocks. That's discover.bot slash coding blocks to learn about how to get started on your next great bot. All right. It's that time again where I'm going to ask you and thank you for leaving us a review because it means the world to us. It's it's the biggest thing that you can do and it's the thing that we want most uh, in 2019 and every year prior. We want reviews. We really appreciate when we get them. iTunes, Stitcher, if you go to codingblocks.net slash review, we're going to have links to a couple others. Uh, it's really important for us to help grow the show and it really means a lot and it really helps us out. So if you could go there, leave a review, uh, just a small one with lots of stars, that would be fantastic. Yep. And, uh, as we've said before, Hey, share us with a friend, spread the, spread the word. We, we would greatly appreciate that. And, uh, with that, I want to take a moment. We played this little game before and I thought it was a lot of fun about how much data is generated every minute. 
And there is a new version of it that's available. And I thought, hey, we could uh, we could play it again, but with the new version. So we won't. Oh man, I should have paid attention to the old version. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. Uh, and and these are like new categories too. Some of some of them are new categories. So, uh, I, I wasn't going to like repeat the ones that we've already done, but so <clears throat> every minute of every day for the year twenty eighteen, right? How many packages did Amazon ship every minute of every day? Wow. Um, how many people are in the U.S.? 25, 255 million? 300 million. I thought, yeah, somewhere in the ballpark. So I'm going to say 500 million packages. No, minute? every minute of every day? Is that is that crazy? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Let me do some that. maths. I'm going to go. Every minute. Uh, let's say every minute. I'm going to go with 1,000 packages. All right. Well, I, I like these answers. Fifty million every minute. <laughs> Thirty thousand. A thousand every minute. So we're, we're we go from one extreme to the next. And out. Thirty thousand for me. I think were, thirty thousand a minute. Your spot. You're really close, man. Really? Super duper close. Even by survey says rules, you would have you would have won. The the answer was one thousand one hundred and eleven. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Every minute of every day. Of that's packages. how much how many packages they're, they're shipping. That is crazy. Um okay, so we all love Giphy. So uh hang on real real quick there, sorry. So I just wanted to see uh how much that was, and uh so that was one point five million. So that's like in, in a day, sorry, in a day. So you kind of think about like in terms like what we said, you know, three hundred million, that's that's like Every other person, half of the people in the U.S. get a package every day. <laughs> that's crazy. This, yeah, that's just nuts. All right, sorry. It's kind of a big deal. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard of Amazon. There's this thing called Amazon. <laughs> okay, so uh, we all love Giphy, right? Oh, man, I was so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so wrong, man. I'm sorry. What's well, 1.5? I was going to say, so what, 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 would you say... Yeah, every day, <laughs> like half of people get a package every day for Amazon. I'm so sorry, that's so people. wrong. I'm so wrong. Joe's kind it's, of here tonight. He's he's sort of yeah. partly here. <laughs> it's one in 150 people get a package every day. So I'm sorry, and that's like third diversion. I'm just gonna shut up now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <clears throat> so uh, Giphy, big part of our Slack community. We all we all know it well. Is it not Jiffy? Sorry, go ahead. Okay. So how <laughs> many how many GIFs do you think Jiffy serves up every minute of every day of twenty eighteen? Ooh. Every day twenty eighteen. And this is this is just through Slack or is this Jiffy or Giffy or whatever it is? Uh, just how much they serve up because even okay. if it's coming from Slack, they're still serving it. So anywhere. Wow. So what was the uh, parameters? What was the time parameter there? You said every, every minute, every, the, all of these questions are every minute of every day for 2018. How many? I'll go with 10,000, 10,000. 
man. Uh, one thousand. Wait, served up. Um, ah, oh, geez. Uh, twenty thousand. <laughs> All right, so ten thousand and twenty thousand. Yep. Well, I'm gonna give it to Joe. Oh, he's yeah. he's technically the closest. Man. Worked for it. <laughs> he's technically the closest. You know, I'm proud of you too. I just gotta say because. In the history of all these games, I don't recall you guys ever like literally one upping the other person and saying like <laughs> 10,001. You know, I don't recall that ever happening, but, uh, yeah. 1,388,889 per minute. Every minute wow. of every day of 2018. Wow. wow. Right. That's nuts. Um, let's see. How do they make any money? (laughs) Right. I know. (laughs) Yeah, really? Okay. So let's see. Uh, they own the backbone to the interwebs. That's why. All right. Docker. (laughs) Kubernetes. That's why. Cloud. All right. How much Bitcoin is created? New Bitcoin. Every minute. Oh gosh. Two. Wait, Bitcoin still exists? <laughs> I mean they exist, they're just not worth much. Uh, I'll go with three. I'm gonna one up you on this one. Three. Oh. All right. <laughs> because not much happened. Just as soon as I gave you guys a compliment, man. Well, I mean, do it. Yeah, but it, you gave us a fractional question. We can't do much with this one. All right, Joe takes it again. It's oh. two to one. Wow. <laughs> It, no, no, no. I'm saying your score is two to one. Joe's Dang ahead, it. two to one. Oh, okay. So it was less than two. The the new Bitcoin every minute of every day, 1.25. Dang it, man. Wow. All right. I was actually surprised it was that high. Yeah. I, I, that part. When okay. you consider how much energy is wasted on creating, that's ridiculous, man. All right. Go ahead. All right. Yeah, this, this is making me sad. It is. How about how about uh new Reddit comments? One point twenty one gigabytes. And, and these are comments we're talking about. Uh, what what's bigger than gigabytes? <laughs> it's uh I think it's thirty three hoopa stinks. <laughs> Great Scott. <laughs> um, so how many how uh, many point twenty one nickelbacks? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> this is too many Nickelbacks, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so how many comment, how many new comments on thir- on Reddit? Um, you go first, Joe. <laughs> I thought thought I'd answer. Um, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say one million. No, a uh, hundred thousand per minute. Okay, hundred thousand. I go two hundred thousand. Joe is now leading the game three to one. Come on, man! <laughs> one thousand nine hundred and forty-four. Oh, people need to start writing more comments. <laughs> yeah. The world's not filled with enough vitriol so far. <laughs> let's let's get some more up there. I tried to give you guys a hint. We're not talking about like upvoting something. We're not talking about. You know, a new post where you were talking about comments. Man, it's Reddit. Uh, we should know all of ours usually just have 10 negative ones on there. Yeah. 
Oh man, yeah. Like I'm wondering now. I'm doing pretty good with this quiz. Like, like how did I not get that Google job so many years ago? They asked me how many ping pong balls fit in the airplane. I'm like, mm, ooh, wait, mm, mm, three hundred. Was it a C one thirty? Hold on, hold on. C one thirty seven hundred. All right. How many uh, Uber rides do users take, or did they take every minute of every day? 2018. 30. Ooh. Every minute, I'm going to say 60. <laughs> Come you on. what this means, man. Doggone it. Did I just go down 4 1? It's 4 to 1. <laughs> Dang it. Wow. Well, look at what you're losing to. Joe is running away with it. 1,389 rides. You're That's not pretty close. You're not thinking. <laughs> 1,000 per minute, man. You got to think globally, man. I did. <laughs> like, we're talking every minute of the day. That's, I that's thought 60 lot. was pretty good. I was like, mm. Yeah, I know. That's a lot of rides. Like, okay, if it were 60, how would people be able to do that as a job? It That's 60? People are traveling every minute of the day. I was trying to average right. it out to like 8 to 5, right? That's that's, And then, of yep. course, the drinking hours. So maybe, you know, 11 to 1. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm not so good with numbers past a hundred. <laughs> All right, I'll give you I'll give you one last of a new one, and then if I'm curious to see if you guys wanted to like see the changes from last uh from 2017. So how many songs does, did Spotify stream per minute? Per minute of every day of 2018. 10 million. One million. The score is now five to one. five to one. For, yes, whatever, man. This game, this game's rigged. <laughs> Seven hundred and fifty thousand songs. Man. Wow. Yeah, they need to step their game up. Should be closer to ten million. All right. So there were some curious ones in here too. Like, uh, I think we did the text one, one, like text messages sent last time. Yeah. This was curious. Last time it was 15.2 million text messages sent for 2017. It went down for 2018. Is it because of FaceTime and, and Hangouts and that kind of stuff? Uh, they don't attribute it in this in this particular uh, graph I'm looking yeah. at, but it went down to 12.9 million. So I thought that was a pretty good, you know, uh, drop all things considered people didn't stop text messaging they're using facebook messenger and things like that i guarantee you they're just not but it's not that. like facebook messenger just came out in 2018 mm, like what new true. technology what new communication technology came out in 2018 that would have changed that I, I i think people are just moving away from sms period i think they've started sending giphy messages instead <laughs> that's probably right. yeah that's, that's about right yeah they, they don't have filters and uh, text messages like my snaps do <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, I got a question. I got a question in uh, the same vein. How many uh, Hangout messages are sent per minute in the year 2020? Zero. This is a little forward thinking. Yeah, zero. Yeah. Well, what about Allo? Uh, that's the thing that's replacing it? Yep. That'll be a lot. It'll be zero. Uh, zero? Yeah, that's right, because they can that one too. Well, what about Google Plus then? Oh, oh yeah, uh, zero. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm beating now on three for three. Dang it. Yeah. I see where you're going. Uh, give me times? another one. Give me another uh, one. I'll get this one. 
<laughs> How many times per minute will I go to reader.google.com just to check and see, just in case? Five. <laughs> it's about, I would say 0.5 per minute. <laughs> just in case. Uh, they brought it back. Hey, listen, uh, if you're an intern at Google, I want to talk to you. I got a 10 spot. If you just like <laughs> plug that server back in. <laughs> just for me. It's <laughs> you realize where they're working, they can't even buy a sandwich for that, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Here, here was another interesting one uh, that we talked about last time. I believe we talked about the amount of data used oh, that yeah. Americans used. And uh, it was measured in gigabytes. And again, it was still measured in gigabytes. But uh, some quick math here, and I can like easily make that into terabytes for you if you'd prefer. Mm-hmm. So last time we said it was 2.6 terabytes every minute of every day for 2017. For 2018, it went up to 3.1 terabytes. So a 50% jump almost. Yeah, that's big. Yeah. And it's just growing. Yeah. Uh, it's too much, people. It's just too much. Scale yeah. it back. Well, I think did we talk about the YouTube one? Was that one that we talked about last time? Call. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, hit us YouTube, with the stats quick. YouTube uh videos watched per every minute of every day for 2017 was 4.1 million, but for uh 2018 it went up to 4.3. So not that big a jump. Yeah. You know, that's already everyone in the world watching right. YouTube. Like, that also uh, corresponds highly with how many toilet flushes per minute. <laughs> so strong correlation there. <laughs> anyway, wow this this took a dark turn. We weren't. We'll never play that game again. This balloons popped on yeah. balloons. Yes. All right. So uh, with that, let's head into. My favorite portion of the show, survey says. All right. And uh, so we won't have a survey to report on from, you know, a previous survey to report on because, hey, guess what? I said it was January, but actually I was lying. We're recording ahead. Um, So that's why Joe was talking about Advent and calendar stuff in January, if you were curious. See. Uh, So, but we do have a survey for this episode which is how much time do you spend coding outside of work? And your choices are nada. I don't write code for free or until I go to bed or I take the weekends off. Otherwise I'm writing code or lastly, like a sine wave, I go through phases, sometimes more, sometimes less. This episode is brought to you by Clubhouse. Clubhouse is the first project management platform for software development teams that brings everyone together so that teams can focus on what matters, which is creating products that their customers love. While designed to be developer first, and that's important, it's designed to be developer first. The UI is simple and intuitive enough for all teams to enjoy using. Now, when I mentioned that the UI is developer first, Here's how developer first it is. There is a button on your story that you can click to actually get get hints for how to create your branch based on the story point. Yeah, it, it's a the UI is phenomenal. You log in and you can immediately see your work queue, your active tasks, your upcoming due dates, and your activity feed. Yeah, it's easy for people on any team to focus 
in on their work on a specific task or project while also being able to zoom out to see the work that contributes to the bigger picture using the fast interface. With a simple API and robust robust set of integrations, Clubhouse also seamlessly integrates into the tools you're already using every day, like Slack and GitHub, for example, and getting out of your way so that you can focus on delivering quality software on time. And you could sign up for two free months of Clubhouse by visiting clubhouse.io slash codingblocks. And again, that URL is clubhouse.io slash coding blocks and you get two free months and you can see why companies like Elastic, Full Story and Launch Darkly really love Clubhouse. So I want to talk about tries and I'm going to call them tries, even though it's somewhat controversial. Looked it up on Try Wikipedia and said, you may. <laughs> yeah. Tries is spelled T-R-I-E-S. And if you look it up on Wikipedia or other spots, you'll see that it was uh, developed by somebody and, you know, like a million years ago. And it was named after the word retrieve. Tree, the person was French. So this is a tree that's spelled like tries and is technically pronounced trees and nobody pronounces it that way. So we're going to call it tries. We're going to call it tries. We're going to be wrong just like everybody else because that's how language works and English works. And actually, we're going to get into that. I mean, just look at GIFs. (laughs) Yeah. So tries also have other names. And sometimes the names are um, kind of specialized versions. Like you'll often see them referred to as radix trees, which are technically a uh, more specific version of a try. But whatever, we just want to go ahead and mention radix trees, prefix trees, digital trees. If you see any of those things, you're all in the same ballpark. And they are a specialized tree where the nodes don't matter. That, like, I saw them on Wikipedia. It was, like, instantly derailed. Like, what do you mean the nodes don't matter? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And this is one where you can stash some some data in the nodes if you need to do some calculations or you need some metadata or something that's specific to your kind of, you know, businessy domain kind of use case, whatever. But really, the data that we care about is going to be associated with the edges. It's so like a binary tree, you would have like a left and a right. Or in a B tree, you would have an array there of children. In this case, you would have... I don't know what the data structure would be, <laughs> but I would think that I would do some sort of hash table here where I have a key that represents each of the edges. And then the value in my hash table would be a node where maybe I keep some other stuff and it more importantly has another hash table with these keys. And so this seems pretty goofy and it doesn't even sound that different because it's one to one, right? Aside from the root, Every single, every single node has one, uh, one edge leading to it. So if this is one to one, why do we even care if we associate that value with the edge or if it's just on the stupid node, right? What's the difference? Hmm. I mean, this sounds kind of like a directed graph example. Like, you know, it, that's what it sounds. Yeah, where like. it's weighted. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we've got weights associated with those edges, and it's important because they may not necessarily be the same value. So one direction is five, the other direction is seven. So it's really important to have those on the edges. And in this case, it's um it's a little bit different. But the reason that we don't say that the value is associated with the node is because the nodes don't really have any sort of importance aside from notating the existence of the edge. And so if I pluck a node out and then re-add it, 
it, it like the, the it's not even it's not even cynical in this case because we don't care about the nose. We care about the relationship. So I, it doesn't make sense for me to say, Hey, get me a note out of it and put one back in because I'm not really doing or adding anything. It's all about that relationship. So I don't say, Hey, here's a node. I say, add a relationship for like the letter seven or the letter seven, the letter <laughs> S. And actually this is uh, frequently associated with alphabetical type things. <laughs> Yeah, it's so it's so unfortunate here because <clears throat> the way the the Wikipedia article versus like going back to the imposter's handbook for example, like their visualizations are in contrast to one another. Right? Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, cuz cuz the way <clears throat> Okay, so let's look at the Wikipedia article for a moment. So they're they're consistent with how you're describing it that the the edge is what the value is. And the node is the relationship. So if you were to walk down in this particular, you'll have to, you know, dear listener, there'll be a link for you to click on. Uh, but you know, you can go down the, the topmost parent node is always going to be blank. Um, if we think back to the example that he gave where it's like, uh, words and alphabetical kind of use cases, right? So no letters. So parent, then you find your first letter. So you'll, you maybe you go down to T. Then, uh, so you're at, the, at that first node level there with for T. Then you're like, okay, well, the relationship to E. So T represented the line that pointed to that other, that first node. Then you say E as your second letter. There's a line that represents that. And the next node down is the relationship of T and E together, right? Which is what you were describing. It's the relationship versus the way the imposter's handbook has it drawn out is, you know, every, every node is a single letter of a particular word. And so you can, you could formulate words by traversing the tree, you know, in a particular path, uh, you know, if, if there is such a word, right. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I, you, you know, who has a good visualiz- visualization, <laughs> is it California University of San Francisco? Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, I'll drop it in here, and it so so. I guess the part that made sense was kind of what you were just saying: is you end up with a tree of a word. Like the interesting thing is, if you go to this this particular visualization on the try or tree, is if you try and punch in a number and hit insert, it doesn't work. If you use letters, it'll draw a node. And so I was really confused because I did A, B, C, and it created separate nodes. It's not until you do multiple letters that you'll see the tree grow. So basically, if you have 20 letters, you'll have a 20-depth tree, right? Or 21 nodes, actually, because you're going to have your root node and then the 20 additional child-child-child uh, nodes, grandchild, great-grandchild, etc. See, this is also still so confusing. Their representation of it matches the imposter's handbook. So you can draw it either way, but the reason I like the the definition of, of having that stuff sitting on the edges is because uh, later when we're going to talk about briefly about compressing the trees, it's where you basically take uh, any node that's parent only has one child and you compress it. And then in that case, you're changing the value that would be associated in the node. 
And that's different from every other tree that we've talked about where you give it a node that has a value and it does something with it. In this case, the tree actually owns the the node's values. So you wouldn't even, you don't even provide the nodes to the tree. You give it a word. So like even typing like ABCDE, that's not really a good use case for this. Try typing in, like reset the tree, type the word code, enter it, then do coder, enter it, then do coding, enter it, then do, I don't know, cod, enter it. And what's, it's going to create a tree based on those letters that kind of, um, well, shows it, the commonality being a big prefix. Right. It'd be better if, you know, you had, too, so many that were like the same word, but like if you did like impose, impasse, imposter, right? Like you would see some variation among that tree. Like they, the 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 top of the tree would remain the same, IMP, for example, but then you would start to see it differentiate below that. Yeah, and in the case where you actually compress that tree, you could take that I and M and say, you know what? Every single child from here has I and M as a prefix. Why do I have two nodes for this? I can save space by saying this node is IM, and then I don't split that node up until I get some reason, you know, some some other combination there that starts with an I. And that compression is actually really important to saving space and also speeding things up. And that's why it kind of boggles my mind to think about the nodes having values, but it, you know, I, I think either way you slice it, it's the same thing. So conceptually, it doesn't really matter if too much if it's the edges or the nodes, because the tree or the yeah the try in this case uh, owns the values of those nodes. So it is responsible for changing it, and also dealing with the implementation details of like finding things or adding things to it. And so you're pretty far removed from the actual values of the nodes, and you don't really get to do much with it as like a user of this data structure. Now. Kind of going back to what we hinted at at the very beginning, though, when we were talking about like the the space implications of this, and you kind of mentioned this too with in regards to the compression, the space complexity of the try is is where there can be significant gains here because you're not having to like restore the entire word; you only have to store parts of the word. Yeah. So that example I said, like code, coder, coders, coding. The uh, I think. Um See, I did a little bit of math down here. Once again, I'm lost in my examples. Um, yeah, well, we'll get to it here in a minute. But basically, you only uh, you don't just you don't store the numbers the the letters uniquely, but you do store the combinations uniquely. So, like the example of code, coders, coding, whatever. Then the COD prefix is only stored once for all of those different words. So right. it's much much less space requirements than storing all those words in like an array or a dictionary. But you got to remember there's a pointer that's going to be going to each one of those. So if your data doesn't have a lot of duplication, then it could potentially actually be worse than storing in something like an array or a, a, a hash table. And I've got a, an example that I think is going to help a lot here. So if you think about a spell checker for like a, you're working on like a word document or something like that and English is a mess Okay, bringing it back around, it doesn't really have very good rules. Like, you know, we could say Q is always followed by a U. I is not always before E because there's that weird C case. And Y isn't always even a value. And even aside from that, there's all sorts of words that we're adding all the time that have numbers in them. And there's actually words in the dictionary that are multiple words. They have spaces in them. They have accents in them. We have words from other languages. They're just... There's so much crazy stuff that you can't really define the English language with just a simple set of rules. 
And so what typically um, companies like Microsoft or whoever makes the Grammarly makes these uh, dictionaries and spell checkers is they just have a big fat dictionary with all the words. There might be some shortcuts there, but that's kind of the gist of it. And so I went to look up how many words there were in English. And just like anything else, you know, it's complicated. Is run and runs the same word or not? Different people counted different ways and things get weird. This dictionary in 1970 had this many, but this other one had another. But the best number I could kind of come up with for our case where we do count things differently is about a million. And that's why I knew offhand that 20 was the uh, was the logarithm of 1 million is because I had looked it up for this example. The so we're building a spell checker. Of 1 million. One million. Yeah, the logarithm is 20 of 1 million. <laughs> no, the lo- it would be 20 levels. 20 no, depth. 20 yes, depth. Which is also yeah. happens to be the logarithm base 2 of 1 million. No. Yeah. Oh, wait. Maybe I'm thinking base 10. Yeah, yeah base 2 of a million is 20. Yeah, Actually, so it's two, 19 20 and should change, be bigger right? than 19 and some change. Yeah. So uh, if we were to get a big array, keep it sorted, because we know we can do that binary search on there, we're going to have a million values in there. And I looked up the average size of the word, and I actually, um, I was curious just that the overhead is string, so I looked that up too. And John Ski actually had a really great Stack Overflow overflow question that he answered and came up with some numbers. So I actually put that together, and I figured out that if you were to store the entire English language in an array – you'd be looking at about 30 megabytes or 32 megabytes, which is actually not that bad, except you think it's, you know, text. So that's kind of crazy. But that means in that big array that, you know, the first word is probably a, and the second word is probably aardvark. And the third word is whatever. Uh, obviously there's a lot of repetition. You know, I mentioned code, coding codes, coder. Um, there's a, a lot of the, the prefix is the same for all of those. So, if you think about those words I mentioned, code, codes, coder, coders, coding, then uh, let's see. I got the math in here somewhere. Okay, here we go. So if we were to store those words separately, we'd be looking at a total of 26 characters. But using the try, it's only going to be 10. And you can imagine that's just a contrived example. If you were to think about every word in those one millions, like there's a lot like automobile, automaton, automation. Yeah. How many cases are there where there's like a significant prefix that could potentially be uh, reduced? Mm. And aside from the size, that's really only kind of a side note. That's not the primary reason to use the status structure. It's nice that you can save a lot of room when you've got redundant data and it's definitely important but it's also really efficient for looking stuff up uh, in certain cases. Like we mentioned, this is a spell checker, right? So if it, like an, our naive hash table or, or um, array example, you hit save or you type in a word, we would see the word break. We would go through and we would do a binary search and it would take a, you know, a logarithmic amount of time to figure out whether or not your word is in our dictionary and we could give you the squiggles or not. That's a fast lookup. I can't dog on, uh, the searches for that uh, are the uh, the hash tables and the arrays because they do a really good job at just using a lot of space. However, if we were to do this with a try, first, I don't know what the, it would be. I'd have to run actually a dictionary of a million words through to figure out what the size was. But what's really cool about it are the other benefits. Like because I've got this thing stored in order of the word, 
I can tell you as you're typing as soon as you type a wrong letter. So you start typing C-O-D-F. That's when you get the squiggles. And the time complexity for me to do that is constant. So it's O of 1. It doesn't get any faster than that. Because, um, or rather I should say, I was kind of using an example where we look up per letter and kind of as we go along. But ultimately, a better way to say that is that the search time is dependent upon the size of the word that you're searching for. So that CODF, I'm looking at four because I start at the C and go down to my child, which remember has the key of the letter. So O, D, and then when I see that there's no child with a letter of F as the key, then I know that's an invalid word and I can duck out right then. So, so as you're the typing, next lookup is constant time is basically what we're saying. You're ta- it's for every key you're getting O of one lookup. So number of letters and then you get down to that last one and you have immediate results because you had the pointer to the last, that, that last character that you had done. Yeah. It's trivial for me to look up as you're typing to see whether the word that you're, is misspelled or not. And then from there, you can see it's not too crazy to say like you typed CODF. We don't know what that is. However, here are a couple words that you might have meant. Coder, coding, coders, whatever, because those are the, the things that it's easy for us to kind of traverse this, the tree down and see what you might ex- what you might have been looking for instead. And you can imagine some of that metadata that I mentioned storing might uh, involve storing some of the most commonly used words that involve that prefix. So just thinking out loud here, this is actually better than a hash table because your hash table example works great if you're searching for a complete word. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing a partial word like COD, that it, it falls apart because now you've actually got to search the hashtag. You're scanning the table as opposed to going directly to a key, right? So this is yeah. actually better if you're trying to do a partial lookup on something. Yeah, I mean, you, you pretty much can't do it with a hash table. You can't iterate through your keys unless you've got a secondary data table, in which case you're cheating. So I'm not counting that. A data structure. But if you've got an array, you can do it, but you just have to start with the CODs and then like loop through all of them until you get to COE right. <laughs> or something that's past that, which is a big pain in the butt. And it's so slow there because you're looking at a, an order N operation, especially you, like, you type that first letter A, then that's going to be miserable in an array or data structure. So you just don't do it. And so that's why this is a much, much better data structure specifically for that type of thing. That's pretty cool. And it's often used for autocomplete, autosuggest type stuff. And English is a great example because it does have a high amount of redundancy. And so you can get that kind of savings and you can see how it's almost got this kind of like notion of compression kind of built in, right? Because, you know, every word that comes in, we've keep the prefixes only once. And so we're saving that data uh, size, but we also save that when we're doing our lookups. And it's also really easy to iterate through. Like we mentioned the hash table. Like if you want to say like, uh, let's start with the COD key or any keys like COD and then go to the next, go to the next, go to the next. You just can't do it. They're not sorted like that. You have to uh, to store those in another data structure and then look them up that way. But this data structure is in alphabetical order, like by kind of definition, right? So I could start with COD, I, and G. And as long as I insert those uh, values to the right every time one comes in or we keep those letters in order, then it's really easy to say, okay, well, what are the next five in alphabetical order? And so, yeah, pretty, pretty nifty. Nice. Yep. 
So uh, I did a little bit of research on this, and I did see that there are uh, there is one better algorithm. And they actually notated this in the, the wiki that said, like, actually, if you're doing spell checker, this is a great example for tries. But there's actually one better, more specific data structure. Uh, so I thought that was kind of cool. And I didn't look too much into it, but I think that what it does is basically it's more finely tuned for kind of keeping track of common terms and stuff like that. So it's got some built-in support for doing that sort of thing. But the the name is pretty funny. It's DOFSA for short. <laughs> so if you know if people are referring to it as DOFSA for short, for then sure. the real name has to be just miserable, right? <laughs> So it's a deterministic, acyclic, finite state automaton. So if you're doing a spell checker autocomplete type thing, then that's probably what you're going to want to look at. You're going to need a spell checker just to spell this thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so like I mentioned too, like um, tries compre- compress really well. So our example, the words that I gave, coder, coders, coding, whatever, they always had the first three letters. Like, well, what if our data structure saw that and said, okay, well, you know what? Uh, let me just go ahead and combine those because C only has one child, the O. O only has one child, the D. And it's not until we get past D that there's any sort of variation. So let's just pull them all in together. So I've got one node that's now COD. And then the the things branch off of that. So now I've dramatically reduced the size of my tree and the number of comparisons that I need to do. And they say that in practice, this works out really well. So I came up with some contrived examples like in my English language dictionary, probably not good because that's like every word combination is a bunch of bad ones. But, you know, the Q and U, I know that there were words that are Q and not followed by U. But if there were, that would be a good example of something that we could compress. Or if there's like, say, any time the word ends in Y that the, the letter N comes first or something like that, depending on your set of words, then that's a shortcut you could take. Well, and there's some really interesting math behind that. Where I was thinking, though, that it might happen is maybe more towards the end. Once you get more towards the mm-hmm. end of a particular path on the tree, that's where you might have compression more often, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, at least absolutely. in our and spell checker saw, example, um, it makes sense. Yeah, and actually, this is used a lot of times for um, things like IP addresses or phone numbers or other kind of areas where... Um, you know, the phone number, obviously the case is going to be, we're going to have a lot more area codes that are the same depending on your kind of purpose. Like if you're operating like in a local area, okay. but uh, IP addresses, it's the opposite, uh, where, oh wait, no, that's not true. No, <laughs> so like if you've got a IP addresses, the prefix yeah. is often similar, but yeah, in English, I think the ends would be there. They also use it for binary. So it's not just for English language, but that's kind of like the most common example, just cause it's easy to give. That's yeah, that's cool. And the compressive strategies do get complicated because it also means that whenever you're looking up values that you have to kind of know that there could be more than one and you need to know to split stuff up when you get new terms in. So that's not uh, not always so great. I was uh, but it's, think, it's like, still pretty cool. When do you make the decision that, okay, now is the time to compress? But I guess, like yeah. you said, those compression strategies can get complicated. And I guess deciding when to compress Yep. It's part of it. You could do it as you go along, but you can imagine if you're a case where you're loading a dictionary for the first time. Yeah, that sounds That'd awful. be terrible because you're going to be compressing. Yeah. So it's something you want to do periodically whenever you get like a new batch of data in or something. Um, yeah. So uh, as far as pros, this is often used in place of a hash. Uh, it's got a faster worst case lookup than an imperfect hash table. And perfect hash tables are kind of hard. So it's a little bit faster in cases where we know something about uh, the data or <laughs> funnily enough, in cases where you don't know anything in data about the data. And so we can't guarantee a perfect hash. 
Uh, there's no, you know, bad hash functions that we have to deal with. We don't have to worry about that. It's We don't have a hash function, which also means we don't have to worry about collisions. So it just kind of takes out some of the overhead. And that overhead that I'm talking about isn't even included in the um, the big O times because they kind of consider that constant. So it's just kind of a, a nice reduction of overhead for a, a try over a traditional hash, plate, a hash table. And you can get that uh, ordered listing of values, which you cannot do with a hash table at all. So if you need that, you need to be able to kind of like find a key and then move on past that, then this is your data structure and a hash is not a way to go. And despite those pros, uh, it can be slower than traditional hash lookups, uh, particularly if the random access time of the medium is bad. And this is actually a case where they said in spinning drives, tries cannot be so good because they're not so good at hopping all over the place like you can with SSD or RAM. So the physical meeting medium actually has a bearing on this. And it's not good when there would be long meaningless change. So they uh, we talked about storing numbers in this and binary even, and that's fine. But if you've got like, floats in there, where you've got these long kind of meaningless changes where chains where like 2.333 isn't really different from 2.3, then the try is not going to help you out on that. The data structure has any, doesn't have any sort of support for kind of recognizing those two things kind of mean the same thing and just ignoring. So not good for floats. It can end up taking more space in the hash table in certain situations and it's because of those pointers there. So if you've got a lot of values with no redundancy, then you're going to actually end up spending more space than you would in a traditional hash table. So ultimately, you know, you should use it when you need those fast inserts and you need efficient sorting and you've got lots of redundant data. And uh, search engines actually use this really, really effectively a lot of times for like uh, autocompletes and stuff like that. All right. Well, with that, uh, you know, we'll have a lot of resources, uh, a lot of links for you in this episode. So be sure to check out the show notes uh, and you can see the resources we like section there. Uh, They'll have all kinds of references for you. And with that, we can head into... Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. All right. looks like I'm up first this time. And uh, so I was kind of thinking about maybe putting some stickers on my laptop, but there's this kind of this weird phase you go when you start stickering a laptop where it's like you put one on it's fine. Then you put two on it. Eh. You know, it's just kind of sometimes this is like this little trash, trashy, trashy uh, <laughs> in between period where like you don't have a lot of stickers on, but it's kind of like, you know, it's a little bit and maybe there's like one that's overlapping another and it's just this awkward, like kind of adolescent phase that things go to and you just need more dev stickers. But sometimes, you know, you go through a, a dry spell. And so I was looking on Amazon and I noticed that you could just buy tons of dev stickers. So we're going to have an affiliate link. <laughs> so if you click this link, we'll get like, you know, a nickel or something. And uh, there's a ton of stickers that you can buy for like eight bucks ship free on prime and it's good stuff is like linux stickers get stickers java stickers uh <laughs> there is no cloud stickers and some other really funny stuff like php php geek inside like oh, a whole bunch of stickers that you can get for like nine bucks and uh, of course if you keep googling and like looking around there's like actually tons of stickers that you can buy on amazon and some are like really cool like i mean i don't I don't know. I, I guess I'm out of sticker game and have been since like elementary school. Um, but there's a lot of cool, really vibrant, neat stickers. I'm seeing like puffy stickers, like there's freaking hologram stickers. 
no jazz stickers, <laughs> all just all sorts of stuff. So they're really cheap, and you should just go get some stickers if you want to if you want to do that and avoid that kind of like that weird kind of you know awkward phase with your laptop stickering. But I mean, we we know everyone's favorite is going to be the coding block sticker. Yes. Oh yeah. And speaking of which, we we forget to mention this all the time. If you want a coding block sticker, you know, drop us a note. Head up to codingblocks.net/slash/swag. And, you know, drop us a note and we'll get some stickers out to you. And with that, nobody's stickering up their laptops. That's crazy talk. Says the guy who just put a sticker on his. Well, I mean, it was an important one. It's the coding blocks one. It's the only thing that I, I deface my laptops with. <laughs> I finally started a sticker in mine. That's ridiculous. Wait, that's the only one? I know. It's the you wrong one. You put a one. sticker mule? Is that the only sticker that you put on there? You didn't put the coding blocks? I'm gonna yeah. s- I'm gonna send them some goop off. That's ridiculous, yeah. man. <laughs> Actually, I bought a, um, I bought the st- sticker pack from uh, Dev.2. So I was thinking about going all the way, but I just wanted to kind of try one and like see if it was gonna rub off or whatever. But it's actually it's been great. So I think I, I think I might go all in. I have an idea of a sticker you should put on your laptop, sir. <laughs> Everyone knows that a coding box sticker would be more than worth a thousand nickelbacks. <laughs> right. well, I have about a thousand coding box stickers in my closet, but I, I don't want to waste one. You know, that's man. That's it. We gotta have a talk with this guy. This relationship is over. All right. <laughs> so, all right. I've got two. One tip is because I literally experienced some massive pain in the past couple of weeks. So quick background, had a console application that was supposed to just do some stuff, right? And it's a process that could be long running and it just goes and goes and goes until it's done. The problem is it didn't go and go and go until it done. It goed and goed and goed until it stopped doing anything. And it would stop logging. It would stop telling you anything. It would just stop. But it didn't, it didn't quit. It just didn't do anything. So what I found through much heartache and just hours and hours of boring looking is there is an option on Windows. When you open up a command prompt window, if you right click that thing and you go to properties, there's something called quick edit mode. If that's turned on, it's really cool because it's what allows you to do like block copies inside a console thing. So imagine you're tailing an output of a log file that's streaming stuff across. If you click in there, it'll actually pause the window so that you can, you know, copy something. And then if you hit a key afterwards, it'll keep going. The weird part is this was running as a background task. And for some reason, it would act like quick edit mode had engaged and it would just stop. So that said, I did find something to where if you write console apps that are going to be doing long running processes or something like that in C sharp, there is a stack overflow here. And I wanted to give this one a special shout out because the guy that put the answer up here that is really awesome, very elegant. It works perfectly. Like I can launch it and I can go look at the properties of the window and I can see that quick edit mode's disabled. This is the guy who wrote Independent. So Patrick, ah. the guy that we've talked about his product on here before, put one of the just it's just a beautiful answer. He's got the entire solution that he's got right there. And a huge thank you for putting it together because it saved me some pain because you actually have to reach into the underlying operating system DLLs and stuff to to do these changes because it's not exposed natively through the .NET framework. So 
really cool stuff. Uh, it's also worth pointing out though, sorry to interrupt. It's worth pointing out that hit that answer from him. While it is not the accepted solution answer to the question, it actually has more upvotes than the one that is given the credit. Yep. The one that was given the credit had the nuts and bolts information, but you would have had to have done quite a bit more research on your own to to put this thing together. And he was like, you know, <laughs> I really like to be able to copy and paste code that works. So here you go. So that, I mean, just awesome answer. So thank you from Patrick who, who did that. It's amazing stuff. And he does give credit that his solution was inspired from the original. Yep. So if you ever run across that, like seriously, days of my life wasted. I'm not exaggerating. It was, it was highly frustrating. So the next thing. So I love programming that, that solves some sort of unique problem that's fun, right? Like I like big data problems because to me that's unique and it's, and it's interesting and they're hard to solve and it's challenging. So I, I probably a lot of you guys haven't even heard of this guy, a guy named Mark Rober. He was literally wrote software and did engineering project, or I don't guess he wrote software, but he was an engineer for NASA, right? Like he, he did rocket science type stuff. Well, this dude has one of the most amazing YouTube channels that there is period bar none, just really cool stuff. But there's one specific video that you absolutely must go check out where he created something and they had to write some code to make this happen. And I'm not going to spoil it. I'm just going to leave the link here in the show notes and you absolutely need to go check this out because it will, it will beyond a shadow of a doubt. It will put a smile on your face because it is just, it's creative. It's genius. And it's where I like to see engineering minds go, right? Writing code and writing and creating things that solve unique problems. Can can we at least give a hint that it's a revenge story? Uh, that's perfect. I yeah, we can leave it there. Yes, it's a revenge story. Okay. All right. And so with that, uh hey, if you have a tip for us that you would like to share, you can go to Joe's favorite place on the internet, <laughs> cb.show slash tips, and uh submit your tip for the tip of the week there. Because I bring that up because I pulled from that and want to say thanks to the Pigeon Fighter because the tip of the week that I'm giving this week is the Semantic Colorizer plugin for Visual Studio, <clears throat> Visual Studio 2015 and up. And uh, this editor extension will give you distinctive colors. So what's really nice about it, that really, aside from like your normal kind of, uh, keyword type of colorization the thing that really draws me to it that i like is the um colors for things like parentheses and curly braces and things like that and brackets and whatnot and uh i think we've talked about a similar extension for visual studio code called uh i think it's bracketizer if I remember right so if you're familiar with bracketizer this would be like that but for visual studio very nice. And it looks like it does a lot more. Super cool. Right. So again, thank you to the Pigeon Fighter. All right. So we hope you've uh, enjoyed this episode on heaps and tries. And as uh, you know, Joe mentioned earlier, um, you know, if you would do us a favor and leave us a review, we'd greatly appreciate it. You can find some 
uh, helpful links there by visiting www.codingblocks.net slash review, as well as uh, we would appreciate it if you spread the word, you know, tell a friend. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or more using your favorite podcast app in case uh, somebody did happen to share a link with you and you're listening to us that way. Definitely. And while you're up there, make sure you check out our show notes. I mean, put a ton of time and, and share all the information up there with you. And also check out our examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedback, questions, rants, to the Slack channel, going to the Slack for the comment. Be sure to follow us up to our at Codingblocks or head over to the Codingblocks. We can find the social links at the top of the page. You got a mouthful of mouth. Right. Uh, sometimes I get excited and I go a little fast. <laughs> we got one and a half hoops. Thanks down. Turn it down. <laughs> uh. So well, what's bigger, a hoop stank? <laughs> Nickel back. <laughs> That's the show title right there. <laughs> <laughs> one point twenty one hoop stakes. <laughs> <laughs> Great Scott!